0: Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments, on the one hand, Dr. J's soapbox, in which I briefly share with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there. And on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Couturium.com in affiliation with Quadel Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, That's cultureum.com. That's C U L T U R E U M.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag DRJpodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled, Experiences of a Cape-Colored South African Psychologist in New Zealand. My guest today is Rona Lind. Welcome, Rona.
1: Hi, Henriette. <laughs>
0: Thank you for agreeing to an interview. Would you mind introducing yourself to
1: our audience? Okay, briefly. Um, I'm Rona, surname Linda which is a South African surname, but actually has German roots, which I only found out after moving to Germany. Um, so I'm a South African living in New Zealand for the past seven and a half years, um, lived in Germany on and off for about 10 years. Um, I'm a psychologist, um, trained, worked, lived uh, first 30 years of my life in Cape town, South Africa. And that's me, no kids, recently divorced. Um, yeah and consider myself as a Kiwi. I've got citizenship, I'm fortunate to have citizenship to two beautiful countries, South Africa and New Zealand.
0: Wonderful. So Rona, would you mind telling us a little bit about how, how your travels or how, how all of that happened? How did you happen to, why? How did these decisions come about? And then we'll go into your work as a psychologist in these different uh, countries.
1: Okay. Good question. Um, how did? Okay. First travel. First travel was really for love. Um, I met my German husband in South Africa way back. My goodness. We're looking 1998, 1999. Um, he was learning to improve, trying to improve his English. And yeah, we met in, um, we met in a nightclub as you do in South Africa, um, lots of fun, etc. And three years later, he was in South Africa full time, um, really loved it. Unfortunately, um, he was doing some kind of research grant. And of course, as grants happen for research, once the research is done, the grant stops. So he didn't really have permission to be in South Africa anymore. So we needed to make the decision that I would then move to Germany. So that's how I ended up in Hamburg. And that was 2003, full on to 2000, end of 2009. It was always going to be a five-year plan, or according, that was my idea, that was our agreement, was always going to be a five-year plan. And from the sea, we would want to go next. Um, And during that time, during those years, I also tried to live and work in Ireland, which was really exciting, however, the timing was probably bad because at that time Ireland was just experiencing a bit of an economic downturn so we then made the decision that we would be we would go back to hamburg and I basically went back to hamburg in at the end of 2009 i made the decision that i would probably go back to south africa because we were thinking at that time of moving to new zealand and the reason for that is I had a very good friend in New Zealand. New Zealand has kind of been a bit of a a magnet for a lot of South Africans because it's a very similar lifestyle. It's the beach, it's weather, it's barbecues. It's quite more laid back um, than lots of other countries. So I needed to go back to South Africa to coordinate that. So it's, it's been back and forth really. So while in South Africa, I was there for a total of two years. But during that time, I would visit Germany. My ex-husband would visit South Africa. So 2013, I found myself packing up again, packing up the South African life, moving back to Hamburg for a couple of months, preparing for the big trip to New Zealand, which then happened in March 2013. Um, I spent six months in New Zealand just finding my feet, trying to find um, employment, just, I suppose, finding my way, really. Went back to Germany for a couple of months and then returned full time to New Zealand the beginning of 2014. And we made the decision then that my then husband would remain in Hamburg, continue with his private practice while I settled and tried to basically establish myself I have to be honest, that journey of establishing myself took longer than I had, than both of us had anticipated. Um, But eventually in 2016, he came over six months, Germany, six months, New Zealand. However, for him, vocationally, professionally, it didn't quite work out. It wasn't as easy um, as it was for me in my profession as a psychologist, which was on the shortage skilled list. So the marriage dissolved, he went back to Germany and I've been in New Zealand by myself for the past two years. Um, And that is how, that's how it actually came about. And I suppose uh, in a a nutshell, how did I come about moving to so many countries is because I'm not risk aversive and I suffer from a serious case of wanderlust. Um, And it's just something I find really exciting. I always still to this day, I wonder if I made the wrong choice sometimes because I studied both anthropology and psychology. And in my final year, undergraduate, I needed to make a decision whether I wanted to go the route of um, cultural anthropologist or psychologist and I opted for psychology. Um, But I could easily have done both. And I do love both. And I think As a psychologist, you, anyway, you're exploring someone's culture, whether that culture is religious, whether the the culture is family. Um, It's something I always find exciting. So, yeah, and that's how I lived in so many countries. And I'm hoping it's not the last. I'm hoping to um, explore possibly Australia in the future. And who knows, maybe back to South Africa. The world is just really... That rich culturally rich, that it will keep me interested and curious. I think for a lot, a lot of many decades to come.
0: But I think the leitmotif, if I may, is psychology. I think that yeah. sort of what what uh, what links all the countries, what links all your different uh, personas or all your different cultural identities together, is your identity as a psychologist. I
1: think yes. I think with psychology, you psychology is is you know it's not it's not you can't remain very superficial for too long. So it, it tends to go quite in depth. Um, it deals with some really nitty gritty stuff—the good, the bad, and the ugly—and I think that because it deals with the real, authentic self, the humanity. In a way, it's 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 something that really transcends, like you say, it transcends culture, it transcends um, geographical areas, it transcends, um, and I want to say different ethnic groups, because I don't believe in the the word the word of a transcends racist because if you use that word, you've got to acknowledge that there are different races, which I don't buy into, something I don't um, adhere to. It does transcend because irrespective of where we were born, how we were raised, what we believe in. Most of us have basic needs, needs for connection, um, a need for belonging, you know. Maslow was brilliant with his hierarchy of needs. I don't think anywhere in the world there's someone that's going to go, no, nah, I don't have a need for safety, security, um, <laughs> etc. Wanting to feel good about who I am, wanting other people to acknowledge um, the fact that my I have a right in this world that that I am meaningful that I'm needed you know and and I think that's that's the big equalizer really we're more equal than we're not and I think if we get to that point um I think a lot of difficulties and problems we've seen currently and we've seen in the past will, will dissipate. So yeah agree with you um but I still like the, the whole culture thing. Um, yeah, and it's, it's the reason why I, I live in different countries. It's the reason why I still find my work really exciting um, because in New Zealand, the New Zealand is based on biculturalism um, coming from a Maori perspective and what's considered a New Zealand European or Pakeha perspective. And I've been in New Zealand almost 80 years and every day is a learning experience um, regarding understanding Maori protocols, for example, and seeing the links and the the similarities between my own culture. And at the same time, also experiencing and being exposed to lots of other cultures, Pacifica, for example, Samoan, Tongan, um, Chinese, Korean, Indian, um, quite a number of, of Europeans here as well. So I suppose... I. I probably function best in a multicultural context. Countries like Germany, countries like South Africa, like New Zealand, um, where you don't have the kind of uniculture, but you've got all of these um, value systems and understandings and, and ways of doing things that just makes life more interesting, you know? And it's, you feel that Germany is also
0: a multicultural country?
1: I did, um, and I do. Extremely multicultural. Um, in Germany, for example, was my first experience um, meeting, hanging out with um, Russians, with people from Russia. With that, there wasn't that opportunity in South Africa necessarily. Um, meeting people from Afghanistan in South Africa, I I, I didn't. These were colleagues of mine. There wasn't really opportunity. Um, to meet people from certain parts of the world. And and Germany was, I would say Germany, whet my appetite even more. As a psychologist, I believe we are all the same. We all have the intrinsic certain needs um, and all those needs we want to have filled in a certain way. And that's the commonality all of us have. At the same time, wow, isn't life rich? That we do have people that have the sometimes the same values as us have the same needs but they speak a fantastic different language how they interpret things are different to you um, and that's just exciting it is so it kind of refreshes your perspective it makes life never boring it's, it's, it's constant excitement and I suppose that is what excites me about psychology as well every client you meet is is different in a way there's a freshness there's a newness and it's the same with, with cultures in different countries. It's the freshness and the newness. And I'm still excited um, doing both. And I've been, I've been practicing. I've been working as a psychologist, completed my internship in 1996. Um, and I often say I'm waiting for the moment where I feel jaded or bored. And it just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, and I think that's a great thing
0: absolutely maybe i could just kind of interject another sort of a little flag you know sort of a little question in between there we talked about yeah. the title for the episode and originally i wanted to call the episode just south african psychologist and one of the things you wanted to have in there was a cape colored south african psychologist so tell me maybe maybe start with that before you even go into being a south african psychologist or practicing <laughs> psychology in south africa what is the difference between a South African psychologist and a Cape-colored psych- <laughs> South African <laughs> psychologist?
1: Um, what is the difference? I think it's probably a difference in massive difference in temperament. <laughs> That's the big one. But on, on a more serious note, South Africa is multicultural. We have 11 official languages, if that gives you an idea. Um, vibrant country, but also geographically very large so me introducing myself as a South African psychologist would kind of not carry over the, my culture, which is Cape Colored. It wouldn't carry or bring across the really nuances of my experience growing up in South Africa um, because I could be a white South African um, from the Northern part of South Africa, which would be, my training would be the same, But I suppose the way I look at the world, the way I interpret things, the way I perceive things would be very different. I could be a Zulu-speaking psychologist from Durban in KwaZulu-Natal. That's going to be similar, but also different again. And I suppose when I talk about difference, my view of different isn't divisive. It isn't about exclusion When I look at different, I look at interesting. Wow, that's another view. That's another way of looking at it. So I don't want to focus on the difference, but I want to focus on because we are different, we've got unique ways of looking at the world. We've got interesting ways of doing things, how we deal with conflict, for example, how we express ourselves, what do we say? For example, just for me being pretty direct and going, straight into hey let's speak about the fact that i'm a colored south african that is also very cultural Um, being a katetonian colored we are we tend to be quite outspoken can be quite provocative um, and it's not always something that is very much welcomed by you know by someone else from another um, ethnic group for example not to say that there aren't differences within the cape-coloured community as well. But at the same time, there is a specific identity to being a cape-coloured, and there's a specific identity to being a psychologist. um, And there's a unique identity being a cape-coloured psychologist. Um, There's a very small group of us, and our perspectives will be, I think in most cases, quite similar, influenced by our upbringing, influenced by things like apartheid, um, influenced by things, religion, um, you know. So yeah. So from that perspective, it is something quite specific in terms of identity. Mm.
0: So, so what is the Cape coloured identity or the Cape coloured psychologist identity?
1: Oh, that. This is it's probably one of the most. Um, controversial things at the moment during apartheid um, as we know humanity tends to find needs to hold on to solutions or ideas when this difficult situation so during apartheid there was one common identity in terms of ethnic groups you were white you were indian you were colored you were black south african it kind of made things easier Um, You had a common enemy. The enemy was racism. The enemy was apartheid. When apartheid fell, you had all these new conversations coming up. You had all these new battles, discomfort around what is my identity now when initially the identity was this is who I am. And the common purpose is breaking down Um, apartheid breaking down systemic racism etc breaking down oppression and there was there was quite a bit of unity within various communities at that time however when you have something happening like apartheid and a very powerful system and that system falling away there is a little bit of an emptiness there is a little bit of a confusion which is also healthy it's natural Um, you know it's it's a form of a rebirth Um, it's the same thing that happened when communism fell it's that search for identity this is who I was this is who we were we had a certain role we believed in certain things now this entire society is changing so now we are re-establishing who we are so currently and for for several years post 1994 there is this conversation within the colored community and where in the past we I think we were under the illusion that we were a unified people homogenous because we needed to be because there was a common enemy. Now we are understanding that actually being part of a specific ethnic geographical grouping doesn't necessarily mean you're homogenous. You do have different um, political views—you've got different views about a whole lot of stuff, and it's okay. Um, but that very question, I won't be able to answer because I'm still grappling with it, and so so are many other um, coloured South Africans who may be listening to this and going, "No, nah, I don't agree with it. it. Wasn't like that," and that's okay as well because this is we still we still in the process of re-establishing and sorting out what is this identity, because with a system like apartheid, you were given an identity, you didn't have a choice. And this, our work, now figuring out, okay, so this is who I want to be in this context of being a cape-colored. And what does it mean to be a cape-colored psychologist? It's it's grappling with the same stuff, really. But I think understanding a little bit more deeply where the search comes from um, and what's good and not helpful in the search for identity Mm. Um, yeah and understanding things like internalized oppression for example and and just being kind and compassionate with yourself that you are going through the search and that there's going to be some of your people from your community who no longer share the same values but that's okay Mm. Um, you know so it's, it's really an interesting time still post 1994 that we are It it takes long that we're still grappling. But then there's many other cake-coloureds who go, we've got no problem. Our identity is the same that it used to be. We are coloureds. Then there are other coloureds who go, we are not. We don't want to identify. You even use the word coloured. It was given to us by a a racist system. Then there are some that consider themselves people of colour. There are some... Catonian coloreds who consider themselves so-called colored. There are some colored South Africans who consider themselves black, who identify as black or African. And in this grouping in our population who consider themselves very much colored, colored identity, we have a language, um, we have a culture, we've got a shared culture. And, and I suppose all of that is okay. Um, many people in our community, though, I think, feel threatened by that because they see it as a lessening of their culture and that is when you start seeing some of the extreme views and the divisiveness really when actually it doesn't need to be we, you can have different views and still be colored mm-hmm. you
0: know so yeah. so for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with this would you mind kind of just quickly telling us what what did it mean to be colored Um, You mentioned that under Apartheid, you were either white, Indian, colored or black. What were these? What did these uh, groupings mean and what were they based on?
1: Look, I'm not a historian, so I can only speak from personal experience. Basically, the groupings was based on race. It was clear, nothing romantic or particularly intelligent about it. Um, You know, it was garden variety, racism, it was based on a system. You were yep. colored because yep. your mother's Portuguese. Nope, I'm colored because I'm, my mother. So, so this is what happened, um, 1652, a Dutchman called Jan van Ribeck discovered uh, Cape Town. Of course, we didn't, We know we didn't discover Cape Town, He's just the 10th um, European who landed there. Um, they were indigenous people there, for centuries, uh, strandloper, uh, Koi Koi further up the north, sun. What happened, of course, is that you had Europeans coming down, trying to reach uh, China, the east, and Cape Town was the perfect location um, to build, to establish the Dutch East India Company. So it was all started all because of commerce. So now you've got Europeans coming, um, mixing with, indigenous populations and before you know it you have people who look like me you've got the first um, you get there's a joke that nine months after the first European came to Cape Town we popped out there we were the colored people Um, what's happened since then though initially it would be and I suppose the word I'm not sure what word you would actually use you would have your first colored person would be the result of um, a colonial, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, someone from Europe colonizing um, Cape Town and basically having relations with uh, an indigenous person. However, after that, what you would ha- have, and this often happens in group psychology, is that if you have enough of certain people, who look the same, and that's really important. Is an identity. A lot of identity is based on what we look like. It's the easiest thing, it's how we categorize ourselves. So if you've got more and more of the same people, they then they tend to become a group. So what you would have um, centuries later are the the children, the um, you know, the the result basically of the initial coloureds. It's now um, basically people getting married, having the same culture, etc. So your your modern coloured cake coloured, for example, is not a product of um, a white father or white mother and an indigenous um, South African. That that's not what coloured means. Coloured means it's three hundred years of a colored community with roots spanning Europe, um, Malaysia, India, St. Helena, um, where else, China. Um, So a really, in a way, a very multicultural group as well with a common language and a common identity. Um, So that's very much the the Cape colored culture in in a certain part of Cape Town because we also have colored people, of course, in the rest of South Africa. But even the, these massive nuances in, um, I suppose, in the, the way we, we behave, the things that we do, our accent, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, there's a difference. So I and, hope that explains yeah. it a little bit. But Absolutely. It is confusing. Absolutely. And I know as American as well, your term colored is a derogatory term. It's not something that people really identify with. Um, well, not for me. I think colored, you know, sort of
0: uh, nothing more beautiful than being colored. So uh, go on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, think, I, think we're, I think
0: we're all colored. I mean, it's just, you know, what pencils you use.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but in this way, of course, it is it's different. It's a it's a it's a specific identity. I, um, I was just I, just
0: I was just being silly. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I got that. <laughs>
0: Um, but what is your specific? I, I I just just I don't remember it. Just what is your specific national ancestry? I, your your mom was Portuguese,
1: is, is that right? My my mom was coloured. My dad was coloured. My great uh, maternal great ba- grand, uh, grandparents were coloured. My paternal great uh, grandparents were coloured. Then if you go a number of generations back, that's when it starts getting interesting. That is when you have from my mother's side. What is the influence from my mother's side? We know there was a MacAndrews, and a Scots, a Scottish man,
0: right.
1: and I'm not sure if this is the great great grandfather because, of course, there aren't these records. Also, we're not talking about people who got married, right? We are talking about colonization, so it's a very different ball game. Sure. Um, yeah, but from my mum's side, uh, Scottish um, Scottish, kind of mixed with Koi Koi. From my dad's side, my dad's side is, is probably more interesting. My dad's side, his mum had a French father, a South African coloured mother. She had my dad from her partner who basically came from, whose father came from Java, from Indonesia, which is why my dad had quite dark skin and kind of Indian features. And I have a sister who looks more like my dad, who you would probably, if you put the two of us together, most people wouldn't make the connection and say, these two are are sisters. And, And that is when it gets really interesting. Um, But once again, that ancestry is something we don't have a lot of information of because, as I said, this wasn't because this wasn't through marriage. This was often situations, you know, the niceties of the romanticized idea probably isn't what happened. We don't need to go into the history of colonization and exploitation to know what's what likely um, gave rise to things. But that's the reality. And this is where we are as a people um, 300 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a specific identity in a specific geographical group, I suppose, with very similar ancestors, mm-hmm. um, meaning it would be mixed with German, Dutch, Scottish, um, Portuguese. And, of course, in Cape Town, that time, we had Strandlueper, we had um, Krikwa, we had Koi, Koi we had Khoisan. So we, we kind of have a shared lineage in that way. And then, of course, we had um, Malaysian slaves being brought in. We had um, slaves from Indonesia. So that is when you start having this this kind of similarity as well where certain people look the same because their ancestors were the same. And that is how the, the shared identity gets, gets kind of promoted further. And that is how 300 years later um, you have... A coloured community. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, thank you for going uh, into that as well. Um, would you mind telling us now about your work in South Africa? I know you also worked in the townships. Um, whatever you feel comfortable uh, disclosing, and, and 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 most importantly, how was it? How was it culturally specific to South Africa? How was it sociologically specific
1: to South Africa? That is an interesting question. You're asking all the tough questions, eh? That sounds like something I need to research. You know me. You know me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For the the listeners, Rona and I
0: have known each other since 2007. Eight? (laughs) I think.
1: Seven. Seven. Uh, I think it's seven. seven, 2007, yeah. Let's see. I'm going to try and... Let Let me just do it organically. Look... South, being a psychologist in South Africa, I think, is no tougher and no easier than basically being a mechanic in South Africa or being a businessman in South Africa. Um, it's South African society, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's a fantastic country, but with a brutal history. It's something you can't deny. And I suppose most people are still trying to work through some of the things that's happened, because it hasn't been too long. And for most, for many of us, life has been pretty okay, but for also a vast majority of South Africans, life hasn't changed much, Um, which means redressing some of the things that happened in the past hasn't really happened. Um, And many South Africans, those in poverty, don't have the luxury um, and opportunity to go to therapy and work through their trauma because they've got to, they've got to go out there and survive. You know, you working through trauma and trying to survive kind of keeps you in trauma. So that's just something I think I would like to clarify. I think what's quite special about South Africa is the gender-based violence, which we've seen a resurgence of in the past couple of years. Um, and I've kind of tried to figure out for myself as a psychologist as well, where does it come from? And there's lots of reasons for it. Um, you'll have sociologists, psychologists as well speaking about you know the psychology of oppression. If you're raised in violence and you're conditioned by violence and you react uh, violently, no one can blame you, etc. cetera. Um, And part of that I kind of get. At the same time, I'm also a firm believer in, I suppose, redemption and also a firm believer in taking accountability for your actions because we do have loads of South Africans who have just gone through abject poverty and massive oppression and just really the worst things that people could experience. And you don't have. someone turning to crime or becoming violent. So I think as a psychologist, it's pretty it's, its pretty difficult for me. I understand the impact of apartheid. I understand growing up in an environment. At the same time, I also believe in being accountable for this, the things that you do to others. So I think that is something that's very particular Uh, to South Africa as the the degree of ongoing aggression and violence towards children and women. And I haven't done too much research really about other countries to know whether what's happening in South Africa is really that different to what happens in other societies where you have political systems that have broken down in this instability and they are men who were powerless um, and now i'm not sure is enacting a sense of power um over others i'm not sure really to be honest it's something i've been thinking about but it's not something i've really researched i do know that it's something that happens in other countries as well i think we saw a little bit a lot of that really um, when was it, in the the 90s with uh, the Bosnian, uh, you know, the conflict there where rape was used as a political tool. It's not the same in South Africa, though. It's not a political tool. It it seems to be almost wanton um, violence against others who are vulnerable. And without going into too much of the psychology and the sociology, let's also just look at sometimes the practical stuff. Um, People are Especially women are being killed. Women have been killed. Women have been abused for financial reasons, because of crime, etc. Mm. Um, but I think that would be probably the most the most difficult um, part of having been a psychologist in South Africa, because that is something you you would you would find you would work with um, survivors mm. of sexual violence, survivors of violence, and not just women. Um, and this is the thing I think that many people don't understand. Sexual violence is not just something that's perpetrated against women; mm. it's the sexual violence against um, men as well. And I think that is something that's that's particularly that's particularly difficult, or that I found particularly difficult um, as a South African psychologist. And it's not as if you would expect it in the area of work that you were doing. You didn't need to specialise in trauma to deal with. Highly traumatized populations. You could be doing. You could be an educational psychologist doing. I don't know, um, a parenting program, and you would be. You probably confronted. would be confronted. Yeah. Or you could be a psychometrist doing some kind of psychometric test for the human resource department, and you're going to be confronted with a traumatized uh, survivor in some form. So I think that that is probably something that is not unique to South Africa, but something that's also more prevalent than what I would have experienced in Germany or Ireland or New Zealand. It's the degree of trauma. And I think the degree of trauma and the extent to which the trauma affects a whole group of people, um, whether it's gender-based violence or just the trauma of poverty, the trauma of racism, the trauma of uncertainty, the trauma of apartheid, really. So, yeah, that that was tricky um, to circumnavigate, to be honest. But at the same time, also the most rewarding work, mm. because it's it's often through these, it's often as you go through some of these heavy dark things that that you experience and really witness human resilience, which is just amazing, Hmm. you know? So, Hmm. yeah. But I think that 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 is particularly difficult for psychologists in South Africa, I would say, Hmm. Um, to have some shared understanding around what some of the, the difficulties, the challenges that the client is experiencing and trying to meet the needs of the client with that kind of combination of theoretical, um, clinical skills, plus the humanity. You know the what's it? Is um, it Carl Rogers? You know the basics when you start psychology. Everyone starts out person-centered psychology. Carl Rogers, genuineness, empathy, and warmth. That's the basis. Um, that's the basis of psychology, really. Um, Freud, um, Erickson, Mahler, Winnicott, all of the other theorists, um, et cetera, how we work with people at the end of the day, you can have all the best skills. Um, You can be trained in stuff. It comes down to humanity, really. And I think that is something, I think that is something really South African. Um, We tend to be very matter of fact. We tend to be quite practical um, and we tend to be able to go. This is what's happened. Let's see what we can. Let's see what we can do about this. Working collaboratively um, with our clients. Not that other psychologists don't do that, but I think that is that's what's worked for me. Coming from a specific community, um, having started out grassroots. Grassroots meaning um, first exposure to very traumatized um, young women. I think that was. Just before I, I was then registered as an interpsychologist. It's understanding that all the knowledge that you have, your theoretical knowledge, is really helpful. Your clinical knowledge, the way you conceptualise and formula, uh, formulate, it's essential and equally essential as just being just being authentic, being yourself, and having empathy with the person that's sitting opposite you, the person who's coming to you for support and I think that's been the basis for me through whichever work I basically do Um, in fact today I told a young person and I said hey I don't see my role any different I'm a psychologist and my role is to provide a service I don't and I literally and I believe in this my role is not any different to um, a hairdresser a petrol pump attendant a baker etc I provide a service." and that service is to offer support um, and help someone on their journey to a place where they want to be which is different to the place that they are now because the place now is uncomfortable or painful and it's it's it's, it's that's my very matter of fact um, view really and i think that's very much influenced as well by by the culture that i come from which is basically roll up your sleeves help where you can help um yeah and coming from yeah, coming from quite, quite a financially disadvantaged uh, kind of grassroots community as well on the Cape Flats, um, where you, you roll up your sleeves. And if you want to get anywhere and you want to see change, you need to work at it. So I think that that's what's really influenced me as a psychologist most. Hmm. Um, in addition, to, in addition to the training, you know?
0: <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Do you think that it would be possible for a non-South African psychologist uh, with training to go into some of these townships and uh, be an effective psychologist? And I don't mean just be able to help the victims or the patients, but also be able to deal with it themselves? Or do you think that it's just too different and too, uh, you know, that there, that it would be too much of a, too much of a shock and too much of a,
1: uh, a trauma in itself. Not at all. I think it would be any psychologist who was trained, who was well-trained, not just in trauma. You don't necessarily need to be trained in trauma to work with someone who is experiencing or have experienced trauma. Um, I think it comes back to the basics of the relationship. It comes back to the basics of the humanity, um, how you work with someone, your empathy towards them, um, etc. And I, I sometimes also think that it might even be helpful sometimes. And I have experienced this um, in South Africa and even here in New Zealand where you will find. Um, a client or a patient who actually welcomes um, working with a clinician who is not of the same, let's say, ethnic group, or not of the same um, nationality. Bearing in mind there aren't any language issues that are that can be major issues. I think there's a there's almost a it could be seen as a as actually a sense of having someone else who's able to have a different view and someone who's not embedded almost in the same historical political trauma um, um, as the client, that might actually be something that could be really, really helpful, but I'm, I'm a hundred percent certain that you don't have to be a South African psychologist who work pretty successfully with, Um, South African clients and I think the the converse is also true as a cake colored South African psychologist I'm working quite successfully with non-South African um, uh, clients and patients so and I think everything just comes back to genuineness, empathy and warmth, humanity um, and good clinical knowledge Um, and and that is what really makes um, psychology and it's it's about ethical practice isn't it it's about Mm -hmm. understanding what your limits are in terms of your scope in terms of is this a little bit too much for me Um, should I be referring somewhere else or should I be getting additional supervision Um, yeah and and also again, it's about the right of the client. Is the client comfortable with this? Is this um, something the client would prefer working with someone else? So yeah, I think it's it's um, just to answer your question. It's I think any good psychologist can work with um, any any client really. Mm.
0: Um,
1: of course, what what you just mentioned. I mean, I think that's where that's
0: one area where language is absolutely essential where I think it's not enough to just sort of kind of speak the language. I think it really has to be your language to, to be in therapy, I mean, or to therapize. I mean, you know, sort of, I mean, uh, to, to, to do your job as a psychologist properly and to be a patient in, in uh, treatment, I think it, you really have to have a common language that's not in any
1: way forced or, or contrived or difficult. Yeah. Um from my perspective, I haven't I have worked with clients who for whom English isn't um, their first language. I have worked with and with an interpreter on two occasions. Um, haven't found the process um, that comfortable, to be honest. And yeah, I'm, I think the issue of language would probably be a, a bit of a barrier. Um, in fact, I think it would actually be quite a barrier because that is something, and especially if you're dealing with whether it's trauma or whether it's anxiety or low mood or alcohol and other drug issues, of course, the way we treat is talking therapy. I know there's play therapy, etc. but when you're working, um, you know, in mainstream, the communication is talking, and for that there needs to be the language to be able to communicate. So I think that is a, um, that is a major um, issue for, for some populations. And then probably it is helpful um, to have someone who's able to speak the language. And I haven't had too much experience with um, interpreters uh, to know how that system can actually work. Um, mm-hmm. I've only mm-hmm. used interpreters twice, as I said, and, and it wasn't too comfortable um, a situation. We weren't speaking about even very confidential, or you know, difficult matters. It was quite um, superficial information um, that was gathered. And it, yeah, I found so it. Okay. I think that's just my own perspective. It might, it might work really well with other people. I found it quite difficult.
0: Mm mm-hmm. Uh, let's go into your work as a psychologist in New Zealand. Are there any aspects to this work that are
1: different? I think the biggest difference is, again, the resources. Um, New Zealand has an amazing, and I know there's quite a lot of, dissatisfaction with a mental health system. And many New Zealanders think that it can be better. And I think I agree, everything can always be better and be improved. But compared to South Africa, of course, I can only compare it to that. It really is, from my perspective, um, well resourced. There is Quite a lot of um, supports being provided. Um, there's a lot of preventative work being done as well. Um, yeah, and I think that for me is the is actually the biggest difference. Uh, it's, there's there's often times where I think, wow, if only this, if only these resources, if only this framework, um, if only the support, if only the system could be transported back home. What an amazing difference it would make. So I think for me that is the the, the biggest uh, the biggest difference. Also, of course, uh, in terms of culture, South Africa is multicultural. Um, New Zealand is multicultural. New Zealand is bicultural, um, which which is which is a very different system in South Africa. We've got 11 official languages, um, but we tend to follow very much a Western European-based system, a very medical model. We, in New Zealand, the mental health system is based on biculturalism, meaning respecting and understanding the Treaty of Waitangi, respecting and understanding Maori protocols, um, and really being skilled and being sensitive to understanding someone's culture. And it's, it's your role as a clinician and your responsibility to, to basically introduce and provide that as the client needs it. And I think that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. And again, that's maybe not always what happens in South Africa where there's a very Western-based model um, and the client or the patient conforms mm-hmm. to what the, the system expects mm-hmm. the client to do in order to be provided with the service. We, For me, it feels like New Zealand puts the the patient, the client um, has the, the voice and the choice and you as a service provider or clinician, you basically work according to what the needs of the client is and you, you really respect and you're sensitive uh, to bi-cultural issues, um, etc. So, so that's, that's really something I'm quite impressed with.
0: You just mentioned Maori... Maori-based protocol. What what does that mean? Um,
1: Look, uh, um, it's called Tikanga Maori. So there's specific biculturalism in New Zealand. Biculturalism is an understanding that New Zealand, the first inhabitants were Maori. And hence all services and mental health services need to be an understanding that there are two worlds. There is the European or New Zealand European, also called Pakia um, world. But, of course, there's also the world of Māori. Um, and the service, all services need to reflect that. And, and, and that's what that means. What, what it looks like is um, different for different people, but just a common example is just the way you would have meetings. You know, in most, I think of Germany. In Germany, you have a meeting. Meetings are very goal-focused. Meaning you come in, the meeting starts at nine, everyone is probably there 10 to nine, by nine o'clock, everybody starts, the meeting follows an agenda, it might be a little bit of small talk, and out. Everyone is out of the meeting when it ends, because goal has been achieved. Um, within, within New Zealand, for example, the way we open meetings, um, you would open with a karakia. A karakia is a is a is a kind of a blessing um, is to open the meeting. It's normally a prayer. Um, and so normally a what? We, it's normally a what? It is it's normally a it's a prayer. So it's it's a, a kind prayer, of way a prayer, of open. a prayer. A prayer. A prayer. So it's it's a karakia is basically opening it's opening a meeting or any kind of gathering with Um, with either a prayer or kind of what's what's called a fakatoki it's 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 kind of a proverb a phrase it's to set the stage to let's say let's have a you know let's have a good meeting etc so there's certain there's certain things that you do which is considered part of the maori world and it's, it's a sign of respect and it's about making everyone feel inclusive so that's for example, that is something that uh, is typical. What you would also do, for example, is when people introduce themselves for the first time, you don't just introduce yourself um, by your name and surname, like we did for like we did for this podcast. Um, it's called a pepeha, which is you would introduce yourself and your parents. You would talk about your parents. You would talk about your ancestors. You would talk about where you came from, how you came um, to New Zealand. So it's it's a real introduction to you as a person, to the group. So, of course, when you think of first meetings or first when new staff start, introductions can be quite lengthy. Um, but, of course, it gives everyone an opportunity to get to know the other person, really. And I think that is the difference we within New Zealand and heavily influenced by um, Maori culture is the importance of relationships. It's very relational. We, I think if I compare it to Germany, Germany is very goal oriented where New Zealand is very much relationship oriented. Um, You will find, and this is something I found really frustrating as a South African. And then of course, having gone to Germany, it became even more difficult for me just because you are meeting about a common goal doesn't mean the whole conversation is about finding the solution for the goal. So I would often find myself getting really impatient because people would continue chatting and talking about things. And I could be like, well, we've been doing this now 15 years. And I, in my mind was thinking, okay, so this is a degree of small talk. Yeah. It's not really small talk. It's, it's really a specific cultural way of connection." It's really important connection, understanding the person, getting to know the person. There's various terms like phenona natanga, manika, tanga. It's everything is really linked to connection, and informing forming relationships. Which, if you come from certain cultures that are very goal directed and very um, problem solved, problem solving um, thinking, it can initially be frustrating and it. it has i do find myself often still falling into that trap especially when you've got certain deadlines um, to understand that it is a different country it, it has different values it also wants to find a solution but you you just the way you go about it is a little bit different than what we would do in south africa or the way we would do it uh, or the way it would be done in germany for example
0: mm. yeah that it approaches the problem differently it's uh Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, just to give you an example, I think in Germany, first you you go about your business and then you slowly prove yourself to each other, like with in neighborhoods, for example, you know, sort of you're just neighbors and you are just that way. And then, if yeah. you prove yourself, at some point you become truly neighbors, and then people are very giving. And I, I think that when you are friends, or when you are, when you make a connection, I think worldwide it's the same. Um, once you make the connection, but I think in in other countries you would uh, initially sort of, you, you would have that first step. That first step would be faster, you know. Sort of people would let you in, and then kind of, you know, then kind of decide how far they
1: wanted to push you back. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's it is different. So it's it's look it's exciting and I, like I've said I've been here almost eighty years and I'm still I'm still learning. Um, every day is a learning experience and sometimes it's great and other times you stumble and fall and you make a mess of faux pas. Um, and just to relate, today was one of those faux pas where I was a little bit rushed. I was um, in a clin consult with another colleague and it went over time. I was aware that the client was waiting in reception. So I was about 10 minutes late and um, I just felt completely rushed. was really embarrassed that first time this person needed to wait. So by the time they came into the the therapy room with his mum, I went straight into, um, let me start this process, you know, um, of introducing myself and it's get this business of um, meet and greet and signing him up to our program and as I was doing it I was being the curious observer and I could see the mum she was participating but she was kind of not really into it and I just it just kind of hit me again and I was going okay you clearly you're doing the South african thing you may be doing the German thing but you're not doing the you're not doing the New Zealand thing and I needed to backtrack and put the goal or my idea of the goal aside and I went back into okay let's you know let's, let's start out uh, uh, and I said that and, I said, uh, and you know and this is where it gets, comes back to being authentic and genuine I said Whoop, I just got caught up in the moment there because you guys were waiting and I completely forgot should we start from scratch? And I said, how, how do we want to open the meeting? You know, mum, do you want to open with a prayer, anything in particular? But they said, nah, that's all good. And then we got to a little bit of a banter or as the Kiwis call it, a yarn, which is where you share a little bit about yourself, maybe not too long, but getting a little bit of a sense of, you know, what they had been doing for the day, a little bit about myself, where I'm from, how long I've been there. Mum shared a little bit of her stuff and, and, that is what works. And it just makes an immediate change to what your session is going to be like, or what your meeting is going to be like. So it's very different. And I tend to, even eight years later, I tend to really, as it happens, you know, as the animals that we are in terms of behaviorism, I go back to what is normal or natural for me as a South African, but then I, I am able to pull myself back. So that was just a Clear example again today of, I think cultural matters, that makes a big difference in in the work that we do here, as South Africans working in New Zealand.
0: Mm. Rona, thank you for your insights. Uh, this has been really interesting and fun, and I mean fun if you can call it fun. Uh, <laughs> it's been it's been a bit heavy, but it's it's been. Thank you so much for your insights. It's been fascinating, really. And thanks for taking the time. Any last uh, comments or or anything that you'd like
1: to leave us with? Not apart from the fact that it's been an amazing journey and just speaking to you, because often you're busy, you don't process a lot of stuff, but just speaking to you, just again, the similarity um, that we share as people, different countries, kind of seemingly thinking different worldviews, but at the end of the day, there's more common things, there's more things that link us and draw us together than things that divide us. So I think it's been, it's been really great and I'm feeling a whole lot more positive as well. <laughs> uh, I'm glad. Okay, so look, um, you enjoy the rest of the day in Hamburg. In New Zealand, it's now gone 25 to 11. So I'll be, I'll be getting ready for bed and for work in the morning. Thank you. Thank you, Rona.
0: And thank you all for listening. Make sure to tune in next time. This is Dr. J, signing out.